I want you to imagine for a moment this situation. All of your life, you've been blind. You've begged at the temple your entire adult life. And now a man has come to you and has asked if you'd like to see. Miraculously, he's given you sight. By the time you manage to get over the shock of seeing light for the very first time, he's gone. Now, obviously, you're overjoyed. You can't stop talking about it. You can't stop talking about him, the man who's done what nobody else could do. You hear that his name is Jesus. And so you keep talking about this man, Jesus. Surely he was from God. But instead of praising God, the temple rulers spot you and they restrain you. They denounce you and they call you a liar. They mock you because to them you were born in sin. They expel you from the temple. Suddenly what's important in life seems to be turned upside down. You can see now, but you have no temple, no access to God. This paradox is bittersweet. You're healed, but you're a social and spiritual outcast. John chapter 10 follows immediately after the healing of the man born blind. And after this man had been kicked out of the temple, Jesus finds him wandering around in the temple grounds. He has been evicted by the Pharisees. They've rejected this blind man because he challenged their authority. And ironically, it's this healed, formerly blind man who gets to see who Jesus really is. So John 9 ends with this miracle serving as yet another introduction to a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in the book of John. If you've been with us in the book of John throughout this year, you'll notice this pattern that repeats itself over and over again. Jesus performs a sign which is then followed by some teaching and confrontation with the authorities. And each time the, the radical nature and the authority of Jesus' words pour out judgment on the authorities and turn away those who are excited to follow him as a miracle worker. So we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus says in verse 39 of chapter 9, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. In giving a blind man sight, Jesus was testing the crowd and the Pharisees whether they really saw who he was. He was pushing them to see him as more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet. In fact, he would call God his father, and by implication, he would declare that he was God's son. But they refused to accept this. They wanted to justify themselves. The Pharisees say, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus replies, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Because of the hardness of their heart in believing what Jesus was doing in front of their eyes, he tells them a parable to judge them and to redirect them. Now, if we look at the bigger picture of the Bible, what Jesus does follows the pattern of God's Old Testament prophets. In, in speaking to a rebellious Israel, God would send his prophets time and time again to perform a sign, followed by an oracle, prophecy, or judgment. And like these prophets of old, Jesus uses his sign as a prelude to speaking words of judgment against Israel's leaders. Here he delivers it as a, a parable. And that's where our story of a, a shepherd and his sheep come in. 
And what we need to know this afternoon is that this image is not new. It's a word picture taken straight out of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. And there God judges the leaders of Israel who have been exiled to Babylon. And he does so by calling them shepherds who are corrupt, self-serving, and harsh. He judges them and foretells a day when God himself would appoint a shepherd over his people to bring them as one flock under one shepherd. So if you thought today we'd be speaking about cuddly sheep, you'd be mistaken. John 10 isn't about fluffy sheep and how shepherds warm each other up with the sheep at night. John 10 is a harsh word to bad shepherds. And in their place, Jesus points to himself as the good shepherd, whose shepherdhood is good for the sheep. So the big idea is, is clear today. If Jesus brings us into God's pasture, then he is the good shepherd whom we must follow. We'll see that first we must follow the shepherd and not the thief. Second, we must follow Jesus because he's the gate through whom the sheep enter pasture. Third, we'll see that we must follow Jesus because he is the good shepherd who owns and cares for the sheep. And finally, we'll see that we must follow Jesus because he is God's shepherd. So first, the shepherd or the thief, who do you follow? Jesus starts by giving this word picture. And the elements are a sheep pen, a thief, a shepherd, a gate, and of course, the sheep. Uh, to the Jewish hero, it's, it's a familiar setting of, of shepherds looking after their sheep. And they were considered lowly in that day and society. But for all of Israel's history, shepherds have been the image of the kings and spiritual leaders of the people. Moses was called from being a shepherd to leading the people of God. David, the model king of Israel, was a shepherd boy tending his father's flocks. And God himself is pictured as a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 verse 12 says, As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. Jesus uses shepherding as an activity to distinguish between the shepherd and a thief. And his intention is to show that the shepherd is the legitimate ruler and the thief is a false leader. So let's look at the thief. He doesn't enter by the gate. He climbs in another way. He's a stranger to the sheep who doesn't recognize his voice nor follow him. Now, in contrast, the shepherd enters by the gate. He's recognized by the gatekeeper. He's responded to by his sheep. They follow him because they know his voice. The shepherd is recognized. He's legitimate. He has the right to call to his sheep and lead them out. One of my weekly joys is going to preschool at pickup time, 3 p.m. And what I'll see is four-year-olds gathered around their teacher, all engrossed in listening to a story from their teacher. But the moment that I or another parent walk in the door, all eyes of the children turn back. They're looking back to see if they can recognize the adult who has just walked in. They're looking to see if it's their mummy or daddy come to pick them up. And in that instant that my little one recognizes me, runs towards me, breaks into his smile, my heart melts. 
Just as children recognize their parents, the sheep know their shepherd's voice. They follow him as he would have whistled or sung to them by the gate. And he leads those who belong to him, and they follow. It's a picture of loving care and obedient following. This beautiful scene is not the way things are always, are they? Jesus, in this particular situation, is directing his story at the Pharisees. Remember how the section begins. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. He's responding to their stubborn refusal to see through his healing of the blind man. See through that to see that he is from God. And ironically, they fail to recognize the elements of their situation in this story he's just told. Look at the parallels. Just like the sheep who didn't acknowledge the stranger's voice, the blind man did not acknowledge the religious leader's authority. But when Jesus reveals his identity to the man, he worshipped Jesus. As they were casting the healed man out of the temple, the Pharisees drove him away, just like a sheep would run from a stranger. But Jesus, when he called to him and said, Would you like to know who the Son of Man is? That man, healed, said, Show me who he is. How does Jesus use this picture of shepherding to judge the Pharisees? Clearly, Jesus is implying that like the thief, robber, and stranger, the Pharisees were not recognized by the sheep. They were false shepherds, illegitimate rulers. And this would have infuriated them. It would have gnawed away at their status, their sense of entitlement as guardians of God's law, their power in the Jewish temple system. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God also spoke against the leaders of Israel, calling them shepherds, but not in a good way. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who take care of yourselves only. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Instead of looking after the sheep, these rulers are accused of literally fleecing them. They clothe themselves with their wool, they eat them, they don't heal the sick or bind the injured, they don't bring back the strays or seek the lost. They rule harshly and brutally. And so the sheep were scattered. In short, these shepherds, these leaders of Israel, do what thieves and robbers do. They act in self-interest, and neglect those who they lead. Now, it's easy for us to think at this point, what? Are we thieves and robbers too? Like the Pharisees, we want to justify ourselves. We're, we're drawn not to the role of the villain, we're drawn to the hero, the shepherd. In fact, we think we might fit that role quite well. That's precisely how the Pharisees viewed themselves too. They saw themselves as the hero shepherd who were legitimate, who served the people with their religion and deserved to receive honor. In reality, they were self-interested for power, for wealth, for man's praise. And their treatment of the healed blind man can, confirms this. They weren't concerned about the well-being of one of their sheep, and they certainly were not concerned about God and his Sabbath and the restoration that Sabbath is meant to bring. So what are we really concerned about, all of us who dream about being the hero in this story? Are we concerned about our status, maybe at work or in leadership or in ministry? What about the tingle of man's praise in our ears? 
Are we interested in influencing others and promoting ourselves to achieve our ends? Because if we are, we ironically make ourselves like the thieves and false shepherds in Jesus' parable. Our rightful role in this story is first and foremost as sheep. And before desiring to be a shepherd, we need to follow a good shepherd. So the simple question we're asked here is who do you follow? Often you talk about idols like wealth and status, comfort and fame, but we speak of them like things. We talk about them as ideas, disconnected from the reality that when we actually desire these things, it's because we've seen them in a person. It's because we're following someone. Who is it that we're following leading us to these idols? Do you follow thieves and robbers who are driven by a thirst to take from their followers time, their wealth, their energy and affection? Who, not what, is it that bewitches us and holds our attention? Because when we're worshipping an idol, we want to become someone, not something. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, and not the thief, is the one we must follow because he leads us into pasture. So that's the next point. We must follow Jesus because he's the gate through whom we enter into pasture. Verse 6 says that the Pharisees were unable to understand, and so Jesus continues to explain what he means in the first parable. But as we get ahead of ourselves, we have to admit that it's quite a confusing section Verse 7, Jesus says he's the gate. And verse 9 and 11, he says he's the good shepherd. So which are you, Jesus? Are you the gate or are you the good shepherd? Well, he's both. And here's how. If we were to read the scenario in verses 1 to 5 and expect that Jesus is going to explain how everything fits together through the gate and the shepherd, then we'd be confused. What Jesus is doing is that he's using that first parable to draw out the essential elements of good shepherding. And so he's chosen the image of the gate and the image of the good shepherd to do that. So let's look at the gate. The gate is the only way to enter into the pasture. And that pasture full of good food that sheep need for life and nourishment is salvation and abundant life. Verse 9, he says, I am the gate... Whoever enters through me will be saved. The gate is the entryway to salvation. That is the place of safety, and it's the way of escape. And these two are contrasting concepts, but they're really two sides of the same coin. We desire a place of safety, and we get there by escaping a place of danger. Because Jesus is the gate. He is the way to this place. It's a place foreshadowed by Ezekiel in chapter 34 again, verses 10 and 12. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I've personally never been to one of those escape room thingies and I really don't want to. The idea of being stuck in a room trying to find a hidden code along with 10 other people who are also panicking just, just doesn't appeal to me. Even the mention of it makes me anxious, feel claustrophobic. But the situation reminds me of a time when I got stuck in a lift at my parents' place. 
The moment I went inside the lift, the doors closed. And when I pushed the buttons, none of the lights were turned on. And I couldn't push the open door to, to get out again. And right in that moment, I felt a wave of panic. And I began to wonder whether I'd ever be found, I'd, whether I'd faint and just starve to death in this little metal box. And thankfully, my parents were expecting me, so I could give them a call and they could get the lift and open the door. And in some way, Jesus being the gate is a bit like that key pass, isn't it? Because this lift that I went into had a security feature. You needed a key pass to show that you were a resident of the block in order to be able to push any of the buttons. And I got stuck in there because I didn't have a key pass. So Jesus being the gate is like that key pass. If you didn't have the key pass, you could get stuck and you might need rescuing. And we might not like to admit it, but life is sometimes like being trapped in a maze, a maze of our own making. When we find ourselves feeling lost and, and vulnerable and stuck in life's mess, we, we have to think about the kind of place we live in. This is a reminder. We live in God's world, which has been mucked up by humanity because of sin. And that's the attitude and action of a rebellious and disobedient people against God. And so as part of a fallen humanity, we find ourselves locked outside of, of God's love and care and presence. And on some level, it's for, for our good that he locks us out because if we were in the presence of his holiness and purity, we'd be completely burned up and destroyed. But this has meant facing death and decay. And even though we continue to live in God's world, his, his whole presence is blocked from us. In the story of Adam and Eve, the first couple were kicked out of the garden of Eden after their disobedience and sent away from the presence of God. They could no longer walk freely in and out of the garden. And they no longer had personal access to God, the creator. And where the entrance to the garden was, there was now an angelic being with flaming swords to keep people from getting in and out. They were cut off from the source of life, and so they faced certain death. They were exposed to the dangers of a fallen world, and so now they lived in fear of constant threat to their lives. Now, this is the world we live in too, isn't it? A world of certain death and constant threat on our lives and livelihoods. Fortunate is a person who doesn't have to think about their careers and changing jobs at some time just to keep employed, just to put bread on the table. And the workplace is a constant jostle for ascendance and attention. All of us consume some form of reality TV, which are like gladiatorial sports. And the contestants publicly humiliate each other and tear each other's reputations down. I don't care whether the subject matter is interior design, surviving in the wild, or romantic relationships. The premise is the same. Life is a fight. Let the strongest win. So where can we go to find lasting relief? Ezekiel 24 verse 25 offered hope to the exiled Israelites in what God would do. I will make a peace, a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. Friends, we need Jesus as the gate through whom we must pass in order to find the safety of God's pasture. And secondly, the gate is the only entryway to life abundant. Not only is the gate the way out of uh, danger and into safety, it's the way into life abundant. 
And verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Verse 10 of John 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Whereas the thief comes to harm the sheep, to take life, to wreak havoc, Jesus offers life, something that heals, something that nourishes, something that gives life. When we go back to the promise of God in Ezekiel 34, 14, he says, I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will be fed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Many of us in urban Australia are are totally oblivious to the drought conditions which farmers of rural New South Wales are facing. Some of the most dramatic and heartbreaking images on the internet are of dried ground and starving, dying sheep. In some cases, farmers who can't afford to keep their stock have to, had to consider the heavy decision of shooting dead their animals. Imagine having to choose 100, maybe 200, maybe 1,000 sheep to be shot as worthless because you can no longer care for them in the drought. The sense of helplessness and frustration, the sheer hardness of the land, the sun and the sky. Our farmers know better than most what it means to live day in, day out at the mercy of wind and rain and heat. And during a rural rotation, I once accompanied a farmer back to his property. He had failing kidneys and a failing heart, and a drive to town took three hours. But he was a quiet mountain of a man. In his late 70s, he picked up bales of hay like stacks of foam rollers. I remember our conversations were slow and soft. His answers were short and to the point. And I was struck most by his stoicism. He was impervious to what was going on around him and inside of him. Something else was driving him day in, day out. I should have asked him what that was. Because while many face this life with stoicism, many more struggle and crumble under its weight. Even though our urban lives seem feather light compared with that, don't we also long for some hope that would abate the vanity of our lives? Let's think about what we have to deal with day to day. Work, which eventually comes to an end. Money that runs out, relationships that reveal the best and worst of humans. The constancy of social media, which fails to meet the needs of our boredom. When Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, he means eternal, creative, and unending life. Life that gives and keeps giving. Life that has as its prime concern the display of God's creative and generating beauty. Whereas the thief steals, kills and destroys, Jesus promises life that gives itself away, that enlivens and creates. A life that weans us off from those very things we think we need for life. So that's why we need to follow Jesus, who is the gate through whom we enter the full life. But there's more. So after the gate, Jesus draws a second picture of good shepherding. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the one we must follow because he is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. The contrast here is between a minor villain, the hired hand, and the good shepherd. And in Jesus' day, the shepherd often had assistant shepherds, those who were hired to help with their flocks. 
And Jesus points towards the difference in the quality of their shepherding, which has a profound consequence for the sheep. As a junior doctor, I was training in various different roles. And it was easy to think that my responsibilities certainly had ceilings and limits. Someone higher up would always shoulder the responsibility. A senior colleague once said, trainees don't understand what it's all about until they have to sign their name on the dotted line. That's right. The bosses, the consultants, the manager, even the ministry leader or pastor, whoever is responsible, that person cares about the work. They may care about it because they own the business, their reputation depends on it, they may care about it because the value of their work is related closely to their idea of self-worth. But come what may, they will bear the cost. If something goes right, they rightly get the credit. And if something goes wrong, the boss bears the hit. Pointing to himself, Jesus says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This is the first and most important quality of good shepherding. Because in contrast to the hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep, the shepherd owns the sheep. They belong to him. And so when the situation comes that a wolf appears, the hired hand runs away. He doesn't defend the sheep. Instead, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. On the other hand, the good shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep. Not many people would lay down their lives for anything or anyone these days. And every time I'm on call for the hospital, I get to witness a little bit of something that reflects this laying down of life. Because at our hospital, we have kidney and liver transplants. And often these are organs that have been donated by people who have died and indicated that they desire to donate their organs. At other times, a donor might be a living relative, a brother or a sister or a father or a mother. And my job is to use imaging to make sure that that transplanted organ is doing well. And with an ultrasound, we can see and hear the signal and sound of blood going through the patient's own blood vessels into a donated organ. They have been given a new lease of life. This, in our day and age, is one little way in which I see people laying some part of their life for others. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just let that sink in for a moment. Many of us would agree, even if we care deeply about animal rights, that the death of an animal is not equivalent to the death of a human. Very often, shepherds would have had to defend their sheep from attacks, but the good shepherd here does what is beyond expectation. The good shepherd here pays a human life for the creature's life. So by identifying as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus tells of his willingness to die for ungodly humans because of his deep love in order to rescue them. And secondly, we have to recognize that this statement is bound to the shepherd's knowledge of his sheep. In fact, their lives were knitted to his life. The closeness of life and living between them is emphasized. Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. There's an intimate knowledge between the carer and the cared for. It's a relational dynamic of love and obedience. One that Jesus actually says is like the one between his father and himself. And that's an amazing truth. 
The relationship between Jesus and his disciples is like the deep bond between God the Father and God the Son. I want to ask you this afternoon whether this is the way you've envisioned your relationship with Jesus, as one of love and obedience. Because often in the scheme of guilt and innocence, where our sins are taken away, we're no longer guilty, we often say we've been freed from sinning, and that's true. Absolutely. But we can be freed from sinning and still not operate out of a relationship of love and obedience to Jesus. The image of the Good Shepherd sets straight for us what the fundamental meaning of being a disciple of Jesus is. It is to obediently follow a Savior who has loved us by dying for us. It is to grow in obedience by observing how the Son obeys the Father who loves Him without end. It is to act in obedience to the call of the Good Shepherd. Lastly here, Jesus is the Good Shepherd because He gathers all of His sheep. In John 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The shepherd gathers all those who belong to him from different sheep pens. And once again, this is not a new idea. God's plan for scattered people was to gather them. Ezekiel 34, verse 13 says, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. When Jesus speaks of gathering from other sheep pens, he's hinting at the ingathering of all those who belong to him all over the world. God's global vision of building his flock is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multinational. This afternoon, brothers and sisters, the fact that we sit here and even speak of Jesus is evidence of that plan in action. God's plan from ages past is in full swing, even as Jesus has called all of us from different nations and backgrounds, families and places to obey him. God's people are being gathered from every tribe, nation and tongue to come under the good shepherdhood of Jesus Christ. So to obey, to love and to gather. This is the call of our chief shepherd. And I want to speak for a moment to those who carry positions of leadership and responsibility, especially in our church context. We can learn a huge amount here from Jesus' shepherding. In fact, some people have said that the good shepherd could also be translated as the model shepherd. It is good not only in the sense of being morally whole and perfect, but in a sense of it being the ideal model. And I think that Jesus says this deliberately because his final instructions to Peter, his lead disciple, is feed my sheep. In other words, he calls Peter, after his return to Jesus, to do as he has done for his sheep. He calls Peter to be willing to care for his sheep, to defend his sheep, to be willing to die for his sheep. And these words fall heavy on Christians, especially leaders. I think that the rule that Jesus brings out in this word picture of the good shepherd is rule number one, don't leave your sheep. Number two, don't leave your sheep. And number three, don't leave your sheep. For a time and a season, God has given you a flock to tend under his steady and sovereign hand. Let us not prove ourselves to be hired hands who abandon their sheep, but followers of the good model shepherd who would not leave his sheep, who would not rest until he found the last lost one, who would even go to his death for his sheep to give them life. What does that look like? 
It speaks to the sacrificial nature of sheep, sheep herding in the Christian church, doesn't it? It speaks to the enormous giving up of time, of energy and effort, of mental and emotional anguish, which the sheep may not even deserve. Many of us are tired and struggling in our shepherding. Sheep are heavy and don't always turn. And some need carrying and some need dragging. And others need pushing and some even bite back. But brothers and sisters who lead others into Christ, persevere and don't give up. Because, Jesus, because of Jesus' great love for us, we follow in his footsteps. He who has completed his work of already defeating sin and freeing us to live in his power is with us in his spirit to shepherd his flock. But for us to survive as people who follow Jesus in love and obedience and, and lead others to do so, we need the truth that in Jesus we have a good shepherd who is God's shepherd. And this truth is anchored in Ezekiel 34:23, where God says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, would come himself to tend to God's sheep. And it's in the loving obedience and commitment of Jesus that we see his good and godly shepherdhood. And first he, sees, he says that God the Father loves him because he willingly lays down his life. John 10, 17 says, No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus performs his shepherding duties in willing obedience to God. And so God the Father bestows his love on the Son. So let's dwell on that for a moment. And parents know the joy of receiving obedience. Nothing gladdens the heart of a parent more than to have their love reciprocated by obedience. And doing what our parents desire and their love for us is a powerful and strengthening agent for our relationships. Now, I'm not saying that all love is perfect because there's a love that causes fear and anxiety in a child. There's love that leads to bitterness and resentment. And there's love that suffocates and chokes a child's independence and freedom. But there is a love where children are released to obey of their own will in desiring to honour their parent. And that's the manner of love Jesus and his heavenly Father has. The kind of perfect God, love God the Father has for his Son who obeys willingly even to death. Here's an explicit foretelling by Jesus that he would come to lay down his life and then rise again in order to rescue his sheep as commanded by the Father. Jesus does this with authority. He lays down his life with authority and picks it up with authority. And that means he's been commissioned for this task. He's authorized by God, the Father, in his shepherdhood. So slowly, in all of this discourse, Jesus has been working towards this statement, that his shepherdhood is an appointment from his heavenly Father. It comes out of this dynamic of love, and obedience that is between God the Father and God the Son. This afternoon, you and I are loved and saved by Christ Jesus, not just because God loves us, although that is certainly true, but firstly because God loves his Son and has sent him to share it. We're invited as Christ's sheep, his people, to share in the Father's love for his Son. How are we to respond to the God, Good Shepherd's call? The fundamental question we come back to is, who do you follow? 
Are you following one who is the hired hand or the good shepherd himself? Have you given your allegiance to, to someone who's unwilling to defend you and ready to leave you to the wolves? Or are you assured that you have one who has died for you even before you knew them? Jesus declares with authority and power that he is the gate, the entryway to salvation and abundant life. He is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep by never leaving them and dying for them. Now, when it came to the Jews, they were divided. They said he was mad. And others couldn't get over the fact that he performed the miraculous healing. But as long as we sit in judgment of Jesus' words rather than under his words, I think we won't understand how we must respond. If we say, what, are we blind too? Are we thieves and hired hands as well? Then we've said that we're shepherds and we've failed miserably at carrying out that duty. But if we say that we're his sheep, then here is the promise God has given. He says in Ezekiel 34, 31, You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. Friends, the only way to know this in its reality God as our shepherd is to follow Jesus as the good shepherd in love and obedience.